Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with Helen Scales. And as usual, we'll kick off with a look at this week's news. New research published in the journal Nature suggests that the proton might be as much as 4% smaller than we previously thought, and this discovery might prompt a re-evaluation of some trusted laws of physics. Protons are one of the very basic subatomic particles. Atoms are made of protons, neutrons and electrons, except for hydrogen, which doesn't actually have a neutron. The size of the proton is a value used in quantum electrodynamics and in spectroscopy, but so far it's only been known to an accuracy of about 1%. Physicists would obviously like a more accurate figure, but only recently has this been experimentally possible. To get a more accurate measurement, Randolph Pohl at the Max Planck Institute for Quantum Optic in Germany used a specialised particle accelerator to alter hydrogen atoms and replace the electron with a particle called a muon, creating muonic hydrogen. Now, muons have the same charge as electrons, but roughly 200 times more mass, and this means it will orbit much closer to the proton, and as such it interacts more closely with it, allowing us to more accurately probe the proton's properties. Muonic hydrogen only survives for around one microsecond, but this is actually long enough to blast the atoms with a pulse of laser light, which causes the muon to jump up to a higher energy level. When it falls back down, it releases some energy in the form of X-rays. Detecting and analysing the energy of the X-rays released tells us the energy difference between the two states. This energy gap, known as the Lamb shift, is determined by the size of the proton. Now, this gives us results that are more accurate than other methods of proton measurement, but they actually suggest that the proton is 4% smaller than we thought. This could have implications for the theories of quantum electrodynamics, or it could imply that the Rydberg constant, a value used in spectroscopy for identifying what elements we see in interstellar dust, for example, may not actually be correct. Now, physicists are very likely to be queuing up to check this finding, putting every element of the experiment and the calculations under scrutiny. So we'll have to wait and see what this measurement really means for modern physics. But this could be a very, very significant shake-up. 4%. I mean, it doesn't sound much, but by the sounds of it, it really could make a heck of a lot of difference to, to, to our understanding of, of, of the universe. Really. Well, these calculations rely on very accurate figures, and they're, they're some really important calculations in quantum electrodynamics. This is really important stuff, and a difference of 4% can mean the world. Absolutely. Well, we'll wait and see how that one pans out. Well, I've got news from the marine world this week, and I'm afraid it isn't particularly good news. Antidepressants that end up in sewage effluent could, it turns out, have a major impact on marine wildlife, causing shrimp to swim towards instead of away from light. Now, that might not sound very important, but it is, because hanging around in well-lit waters make these animals far more likely to be eaten by birds or fish or other predators, and that could potentially really mess up and disrupt entire food webs. Publishing in the journal Aquatic Toxicology, Yasmin Euler and Alex Ford from the UK's University of Plymouth got the idea for this study from a type of parasite that infects various marine creatures like shrimps um, and making them more likely to swim towards light where they're eaten by other animals that are the next step in the life cycle of the parasite. So they're controlling the behaviour of these animals to make their own transmission more likely. Very clever stuff indeed. And the parasites change their host's swimming behaviour 
by manipulating levels of serotonin in their brain. Now, the researchers wondered if the antidepressant drugs that people take, that we take to help target our own serotonin levels and control our moods, might also have a similar effect on other animals. And they studied a common species of crustacean called Ectogamorous marinus. Now, they live between the tides. And in fact, if you go down to the beach, anywhere from the North Pole down to southern Portugal and lift up and have a look around in some seaweed on the beach, you may well find some of these creatures hopping and wriggling around. They're really quite common. Well, they, what they did was they took these shrimp from the beach and they put them in tanks and exposed them to seawater containing different levels of various drugs, including the antidepressant fluoxetine, which is better known as Prozac. And over the course of three weeks, the shrimp that were exposed to 100 nanograms per litre of fluoxetine were five times more likely to swim towards light instead of away from it compared to shrimp in clean seawater. Now, back in 2009, another study showed a similar effect on a fish called the fathead minnow, Um, when they were exposed to fluoxetine for five days, they became much more likely to be caught by predators as well. And the question is, well, do these drugs really end up in coastal waters at levels that were being tested in this study? And how do they get there in the first place? Well, the drugs that we take into our bodies, the things that we, we take to cure ourselves, we don't actually absorb them all. And quite a lot of it actually passes right through us and ends up being flushed down the toilet. And uh, these drugs, in fact, aren't removed at the moment in normal sewage processing plants. So they end up actually just finding their way and concentrating in rivers and in estuaries and areas along the coast. And they do reach levels up to and even higher than those ones studied in this particular case. Now, pollution from drugs like this is currently something that's really overlooked. It's not something that we're thinking about. Not many studies are looking at it, and it, but it could potentially be very important. And studies like this are really starting to draw our attention to these potentially devastating ecological problems that they could be causing. It's, it's highly possible that other crustaceans and other marine wildlife could be similarly affected by hormone disruptors like this antidepressant and many other man-made chemicals that are finding their way in increasing concentrations into the wild. It's a bit of a concern. It's good that these sorts of studies are being done. Now, researchers in America have identified a chemical that encourages the growth of new neurons and protects against neurodegeneration. Stephen McKnight at UT Southwestern and his colleagues screened 1,000 different chemicals and found eight candidates that seemed to support the formation of neurons in a region of the mouse brain called the dentate gyrus. This region, in both mice and in humans, is thought to contribute to the formation of new memories and is one of the few regions known to have high levels of neurogenesis, even in adults. Now, one of the eight candidates, called P7C3, had very favourable pharmacological properties, so the researchers focused their attentions on that one. It actually works by preventing apoptosis, the programmed cell death of newborn neurons. Now, the thing is, when these neurons form, they take a long and perilous journey to the right site, and many don't survive the process. It takes two or four weeks. Further research in mutant mice that lack a gene essential to normal brain development showed a marked increase in neurogenesis when on a prolonged course of P7C3, and as well as new neurons forming, a measurement of the electrophysiological activity showed that the dentate gyrus was functioning as it should be, so the new neurons are properly incorporated and they're functional. There was also tantalising evidence that P7C3 also enhanced the birth of new neurons in aged rats. Now, as rats age, they tend to show a reduction in neurogenesis alongside a reduction in the ability to form new memories. Rats on a daily dose of P7C 
C3 showed an increased ability in some standard learning and memory tests, and they also showed a higher rate of neurogenesis. Now, the next step is to identify the molecular target for P7C3, but this finding could point the way to new neuroprotective drugs that prevent or treat diseases like Alzheimer's. Sounds very promising indeed, and of course, very interesting too. Well, for my final story, I'm going to stick with light, but this time the light that comes out of fireflies. And I'm going to ask the question why do fireflies flash in time? Their rhythmic bioluminescent displays are extraordinary phenomena, sometimes lighting up entire forests with bright pulses of light. But why it happens is one of nature's great mysteries. There are all sorts of ideas, but up until now, no one's really experimentally tested any of them out. Well, now Andrew Moiseff from the University of Connecticut and Jonathan Copeland from Georgia Southern University in the US have done just that. In their study in the journal Science, they suggest that swarms of male fireflies flash simultaneously so that females can recognise a potential mate from their own species. And that's very important indeed when it comes to making more fireflies. (laughs) Male fireflies fly around giving off a characteristic pattern of flashes, a different one for each species, and it's a bit like a system of Morse code. If a female spots a male of the same species, she will flash back at him during one of his pauses. Now, for around 1% of the 2,000 firefly species that there are, and in fact they're actually a type of beetle, they're not flies at all, the males will synchronise their flashes over a really large area. And to test out ideas to why this might happen, Moisef and Copeland created a virtual firefly world in the lab. They collected female Photonus carolinus fireflies, and they're a synchronous species from the Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee, and they flashed an array of LED lights at them to mimic males of the same species. When all the LEDs flashed together, females were duped into thinking they were real males and they responded back by flashing around 80% of the time. But when the LEDs flashed out of sync, the females hardly responded at all. They only flashed back about 10% of the time or even less. So it seems that when fireflies are crowded together, females can only make out individual males when they all flash together. Otherwise, it just looks like a big jumble of flashing lights to them. Flashing males are constantly on the move, which means if a female focuses too narrowly, she could easily miss parts of his characteristic flash pattern as he flies in and out of her field of view. Well, instead, what she probably does is she needs to look over a larger area of space so she can pick out those moving patterns. But if there are lots of males all flying around and flashing at the same time, the patterns quite quickly become muddled and confused. Now, the next step for this research will be to work out whether the female firefly's tiny brains are wired up in a way which means they actually just can't detect asynchronous flashes. And ultimately, whether it's them, their female brains, that are driving the evolution of males that flash in time and put on these extraordinary nighttime firework displays. Have you ever seen these in action? I have, actually. I have to say, even when they're on their own, I think fireflies are such a wonderful thing to see. I remember thinking, there's a shooting star, but it's going off course. Um, But to see them, I have once in in caves in Borneo. I was very lucky to go and see some flashing synchronously. And it just, it's extraordinary. It's magical. It really is. And and now to think we're getting a bit closer to understanding how that happens is, you know, even more magical, I think, itself. It's wonderful. I've certainly seen individual fireflies around and they do look like fire. It's amazing. Uh, But I've never had the good fortune to see this synchronous effect. But how does it actually work? Does it travel out from a central point in a wave or is it all perfectly timed? 
It is extremely well-timed. In their paper, um, these guys describe it's actually down to milliseconds. So it, it does pulse through that sort of population of males very, very quickly. Um, just how they do that and how they synchronise themselves is another question and very tantalising as well. Um, but d- looking at this from this sort of evolutionary point of view is, is also really wonderful and hopefully will help us understand more about how it happens because it is really quite extraordinary. I've also been lucky enough to find a beetle. Um, it fell on my table when I was eating dinner and it, it's got this little little pocket of light on the back of its uh, its abdomen and that's what flashes it's just wonderful this this light that's emanating from life it's brilliant there aren't many people who would speak so fondly of the beetle that fell on their table while they were eating (laughs) (laughs) well why not brilliant thank you very much helen also this week, researchers in America have identified a novel mechanism for evolution. In the wild, a gene that increases an organism's chances of surviving and reproducing is usually passed down to the next generation, and so that gene will become more common in the population. But what if, instead of a gene giving an advantage, it's actually an infection with a symbiotic bacteria? Professor John J. Nicky is a biologist at Rochester University in New York, and he joins us now. Thank you for joining us, John. But what was it that made you look into this in the first place? Well, actually, I'd been studying Drosophila and their interactions with nematode parasites in the 1980s and 90s. And back then, there's one particular species, Drosophila neotestacea, that was really getting clobbered by nematodes, which I had studied quite a bit back then. Uh, for the past 10 years or so, I've been studying a different sort of infection, which are endosymbiotic bacteria that are passed on from mothers to offspring. We had recently discovered uh, spiroplasma bacteria in Drosophila neotestacea, and it didn't seem to be doing anything to enhance its own transmission. So I sort of wanted to see whether or not maybe they provided some sort of benefit for flies that are parasitized by nematodes. And lo and behold, we found in the lab that they had a whopping effect. Um, <laughs> when we found this out, when we looked at this out in the field, it was, it was equally strong or even stronger. So there was um, more than a tenfold increase in the fertility of female flies if they carried the spiroplasma. So they obviously give an enormous advantage in fertility, but is there a trade-off? Do do the bacteria affect the flies? Do they need to eat more? Is it harder to fly? What There must be something. They must be paying something for that advantage. There probably is some cost. We haven't seen anything, though. We're just wrapping up right now a... uh, population cage experiment to look at the dynamics of of the spiroplasma infection in the absence of of nematode parasites. We don't see any obvious fitness cost. Uh, The fertility is unaffected. The dynamics of the infection, it just seems to act like a neutral trait in the absence of the nematodes. So there may be a cost, but it's not big enough for us to detect. The main problem is that the transmission rate is less than perfect. About um, an infected female passes the spiroplasma onto about 97% of her offspring. So in the absence of any selective benefit, that actually would be lost from the population very quickly. And how have we seen the rates actually changing in the population? And where have you got your flies from in order to look back historically and see the relationship? Well, in the 1980s, virtually every single nematode parasitized fly that I collected was completely sterile. Recently, the situation has changed dramatically. Now, the vast majority of parasitized flies have some level of fertility, which which is actually astounding. So based on that sort of evidence, I've been able to infer that the infection rate by spiroplasma increased from about 10% in the 1980s to about 70 or 80% today. This is around Rochester. 
Also, I was able to get some museum specimens that actually a former student of mine, Dave Grimaldi, and I had collected in the 1980s. And uh, we developed PCR primers to look for spiroplasma in these museum specimens. And it turns out that none of the flies, none of the 20, were infected with spiroplasma from the 1980s. So the confidence limits on that are around 0 to 15%. So our best guess is that the infection frequency was around 10 to 15% in the 1980s, and that's uh, increased dramatically in the last 20 years. That's definitely a significant change, isn't it? Is this the only example that we know of of, of an infection like this offering a selective advantage? There's actually a handful of cases now that have been published. So there's a very nice example of a bacterium called Hamiltonella, which provides aphids resistance against parasitoid wasps. There's some been more recent studies of Wolbachia, which is another endosymbiotic bacteria, conferring resistance to RNA viruses in Drosophila and in mosquitoes. So there, there are a couple of, there are a few examples. Um, the previous studies have all been done in the laboratory and uh, so we've actually been able to show that this works out in the wild, and also we've been able to estimate the relevant parameters that govern the dynamics. And those parameters are consistent with this very rapid increase in the infection in the last 20 years. So how can this tell us a bit about evolution? As I said in the introduction, it, it, the mechanism is very similar, but instead of a gene, we have this symbiotic infection. What can we learn about the way that the flies have evolved from this mechanism? Well, I think this may be the tip of the iceberg, these few cases that have been found so far. People have been surveying insects now for the last uh, 10 years or so for infection by endosymbionts. There are a number of species of endosymbionts that infect insects. And it turns out that the majority of insect species are infected by one or more species of endosymbionts. And in the vast majority of cases, we have no idea what they're doing. And I wouldn't be surprised if in many cases, the endosymbionts actually provide some kind of protection against um, some kind of natural enemy that they encounter in the wild. It's exactly analogous to, to adaptation by spread of a beneficial mutation. So all the standard criteria for evolution by natural selection are met in this case, but it just doesn't involve a gene. This brings me on to my final question. That You said most insects we think have probably got a relationship like this. Can this tell us anything about tackling bugs that are a problem, those that carry disease? There are a couple of human diseases, uh, river blindness and lymphatic filariasis, also known as elephantiasis. These diseases are caused by nematodes that are carried from one person to another by insect vectors, black flies and mosquitoes. So it's occurred to us that if spiroplasma adversely affects nematodes in these insect vectors, the same way it does in Drosophila, one might be able to use spiroplasma as a, as a means to actually control the spread of these particular diseases, which infect tens of millions of people in uh, tropical regions, especially Africa. So it's a potentially novel means of controlling these particular diseases. Well, this is a, a wonderful finding, a very elegant paper, and, and it's nice that there's so many different angles to take on it. But thank you ever so much for joining us. That was Professor John Janicki from Rochester University. He's published that work in the journal Science this week. And so to read more about that or any of this week's news stories, you can join us online at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.